Hello, everyone. This message is called Mountain Climbing with Jesus. It is an overview of the Gospel of Matthew and attempts to look at a way that Matthew uniquely invites us to follow Jesus. Now, unfortunately, we did have some technical issues. So the first part of this message is missing, which I'll supply here. And then there was this hideous buzz throughout the recording, which my friend William was able to miraculously eliminate at the cost of sound quality, though. So the audio quality of this message will be less than we prefer. We apologize for that. Now, let's begin the message with me talking to you right here in my office in order to catch you up to the few minutes that are cut off. So, I start the message off like this. There is magic in the mountains. The Garden of Eden was built atop a mountain, the prophet Ezekiel tells us. And there was the magic of God and humans walking together, being one. Everything was harmony and paradise. But of course, we lose that. But God then seeks yet another mountain, Mount Sinai. And he delivers his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt and brings them to this mountain and calls Moses to climb this mountain where he there meets with him as he had met with Adam and Eve. And there he gives them his vision for life, for humanity. And then we flash forward to the New Testament. And there's Jerusalem, that mountain in which God has chosen as his city. And there Jesus comes as the form of God, meeting with people, touching them, healing them, speaking to them. And then we look forward at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, where the new Jerusalem comes down to the new earth. And there John is invited by an angel to climb up a mountain so that he can tour the new city. So if you can pardon the phrase, there is magic in the mountains. Hikers see heaven. Hikers get to have an experience with God in which inside the conditions of heaven are planted in their lives before they even get to heaven. So that is my little introduction. Here is the rest of the message live. Those who are willing to make the climb to the presence of God, make the climb wherever he leads, continue upward. They have the conditions of heaven within before they go to heaven or it comes here, depending on if you outlive death or not. Anyways, that's another thing. So uh, I want to read to you guys before we hit Matthew, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, we see this vision. Isaiah 2 verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations 
shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come to this mountain and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. So the mountain of God will be elevated above all others and the world will say, let's go there because the law of God is there. We've heard his way of life. His leadership is there. Let's go receive. Now, some say and see that this is a vision of the very, very end of time when when God brings everything together. Um, Yes, indeed. But can you not also see the inauguration, the beginnings here of Jesus Christ himself who comes to Jerusalem? And because of his death and resurrection, we have all nations everywhere. I know we're Americans, but every American's from somewhere else originally, right? Every nation of us here in this room is coming to this mountain. We're climbing to visit and worship the God of gods we are living out this vision and matthew sees jesus as the lead hiker he's blazing the trail and he's saying come with me this way to the house of god this way to the mountaintop this way to where the magic of the fullness of the divine and the human congregate together and so we have this invitation are we going to go matthew wants to take you through those mountains so um if you're still reading through Matthew, get ready to hike with Jesus. So let's go through. There's there's technically five mountains in Matthew. Um, we're going to cover three of them tonight. So the first one is in Matthew chapter five. <clears throat> we read, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this setting here is the Sea of Galilee, northern part of Israel, where Jesus did most of his work until he goes down to Jerusalem to die. Sea of Galilee does not technically have mountains around it. The lake is below sea level, and it's surrounded by like a rim of hills. Yet Matthew says that Jesus climbs the mountain, the disciples come, and there we know from later in the chapter, or in the, at the end of the message, there's a crowd of people listening as well. He's not literally like at the, at the rim here on our mountain, screaming down 5,000 feet to people below hearing his sermon, not even close. He's actually just up on a little elevated hill, and he's talking to the masses so that they could hear him. Yet Matthew doesn't miss to misspeak here. He knows what he's saying when he says a mountain. Because to Matthew, the mountain is not just literal, has to exceed a thousand feet to be a mountain. To Matthew, this is our new Moses climbing Sinai and giving to us the law of God. To Matthew, the mountain is not just something that we have to physically climb with our feet. The mountain is the message of Jesus. And every time we choose to follow that message, you're following the path one step higher, one foot up in elevation up the mountain. Matthew is giving us a vision for climbing up to God with him. And so Jesus is the first up the mountain. And who does he take up with him? His disciples. Are you a disciple? 
So that's the first one. We'll come back to it. I'll give you guys an overview. So you guys are, by the way, going to want to have three spots held here in Matthew. So if you've got like a bookmark, if you've got a bulletin, you got a pen, insert those things, put one here, go to Matthew 17. Here is the second major mountain. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So in the middle of the gospel, there's a mountain. Now the third, hold your spot here, we'll come back to it later. The third is Matthew 28, the end of the gospel. Of course, Jerusalem's a mountain too. Jesus dies there, pretty big things happen. But Matthew doesn't actually specify and make a big deal about it being a mountain, so I'm not going to make a, as big of a deal of it right now. It'll come later, though, in the other gospels. But, uh, so the third is Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples, remember Judas defected, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And you can hold your spot there, because we will, of course, revisit. Okay. So there you guys have it. The three mountains in Matthew's gospel. And these are three big ones. So let's look at each, what happens at each mountain and what we can learn from it and how we are supposed to mountain climb with Jesus in each of these. So the first one, Matthew 5, Jesus climbs the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, the first mountain occurs when Jesus delivers his most famous sermon. It's the first sermon he gives in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus climbs the mountain, and it's at this mountain, where it's from the mountain, it's on the mountain, that we hear the words of God through the sermon of Jesus. And it's through this sermon of Jesus that he gives us a vision for life. The Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, all the way through chapter 7, has been considered the great passage for Christian living. If you want to know what your character should look like, the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Christian ethic, the Christian moral, the Sermon on the Mount? And so the first mountain, Jesus is inviting us to climb up so that we can build character in our lives. One of the things we miss in the Christian life I think, I think you're seeing it too, is we're missing the substance of what a Christ follower is in the sense of character. We have a lot of, and this is good of course, come and believe this about Jesus and you're saved and follow him, but we don't often encourage people to start now the hard walk of character, the hard climb of developing the attributes and the virtues and practicing the morals that Jesus has taught us. Because, well, by default, let's be honest, we are quick to descend. <laughs> if we let life carry us, gravity will gently pull us 
down into the valley and we will build a nice home there and have a nice life and be comfortable and watch our favorite show every evening and have our books and our coffee and our sofas and our friends and the, and the preachers we want to not shake things up too much to say nice things. <laughs> That's the valley right there. But Jesus is climbing a mountain and saying, no, this is where the Christian life should be leading you. This is where I want to lead you if you're willing to climb with me. Now, watch what he says. Um, Verse 3, Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. So first step up this mountain is already steep. Because what does society tell you? Blessed are the strong and the mighty and those who have it all figured out and those who people look up to and say, I want to be like you because you're so amazing. People who make a name for themselves. Jesus says, that's the valley. (laughs) Try the first step on this mountain. It's a big one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Four, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. Wait, Americans don't like crying. We don't like, we think, in fact, I hear this all the time. You're at a funeral and they say, the mother is so strong. She's not crying. Oh, how can she hold herself together? She's so brave. Uh, Jesus said you're actually blessed when you mourn and when you allow your emotions to have their space. Is there anything wrong with admitting that you're going to miss somebody? Paul even says grieve. It's not as those who have no hope. We look at people who cry or who are going through something and show it. We look at that as weakness. Jesus says "Mm, weakness is your first step towards strength. Weakness, when we show that, says I need help and those people receive help. The next one, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. Yeah. We like people that have guns. Well, oh gosh, I didn't mean little guns. I meant muscles. Uh, But yeah, a lot of Americans like their guns too. We like power and strength. And Jesus says, meekness. it's, It's controlled strength. We think people are powerful when they unleash their strength. You did what to me? Watch me rant on Twitter. Power. Or... You did what to me? Well, watch me control my strength and be the bigger person. Uphill climb. Uh, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, all, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Brothers and sisters, the mountain's real. This is an uphill climb. Because by default, we don't follow these. We don't say this is blessing. We say this is weird. Verse, 13, uh, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Your what? Your good works. Not so they may hear your plausible arguments for the existence of God or for your ironclad logic when it comes to theology. No, he says your good works 
are going to be the light and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It gets better. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, when it comes to what I'm teaching you in this sermon, you better do it. I'm taking it seriously. Those who do it and teach others to do these things are considered great. Those that just want to stay in the valley and say, I believe that's enough, they're the least. And what did he also say about the light of the world? It's not, it shouldn't be hidden, but it should be put on a stand, like a city on a hill. And he said, your good works will be that. Your good works are what climb the mountain. Wow. So remember, by the way, before you start getting too confused, we're not saying good works get you to heaven. We're saying good works bring you up this mountain of character. And then, he, I stopped at verse 20, so we got to finish that. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, now that he's got your attention, <laughs> uh, what? We have to, wow, we have to have like really good righteousness? Yeah, that's what Jesus is looking for. Now, Remember that this mountain that we're to be climbing with Jesus is his message. And as we do his message, we start climbing up the mountain. The mountain is not our good works to get into heaven. It's our good works so that they become who we are and they become character. Now, um, some of us like to hike here, like literally physically hike. We've got trails up here. We've got thin air and we know that it can take some effort because we got a lot of hills. Where I live, where my trails are, um, there's a lot of, I live right, well, over there. <laughs> and um, there's a trail right out my back door that goes straight up Strawberry Peak. And that's a climb. It's some like 400 feet in about half a mile. And man, you've got, first few times I did that, I'm like, <gasps> and I'm checking my heart rate and it's like at 160. I'm like, I've never seen it that high in my life. Except for when I proposed to Brittany. And like I'm, I'm going up and but then as I kept doing it, suddenly it's like, wasn't I like passed out over there like a week ago and I'm like marching on by and you take people with you? Like, come on! What are you resting for? Like you literally gain strength as you go. You guys know what it's like when you bring your friends from down the hill up here and you're just like marching on like they're like panting. You're like, we're just walking on flat ground. Like, sit there, sit there. There's an element to which we must, when we climb with Jesus, yes, it's hard. Like at first, like, blessed are those who mourn. I will never cry in front of somebody. But then when we start to step into this and we start to get used to it, you, you get stronger. And, and this is what Jesus is after. It's not just snatching souls from hell, but then creating substance in that soul. We have a lot of Christians who are ghosts on the earth. And, and everybody looks at them and says, what, what does Christianity have for me? I, they're just like me. They just believe in a weird set of things. But, but what Jesus wants to do is lead us up the mountain so that the, there's character built into us. As we take the steps, yes, you have to do these good works. But as you do the good works... 
They start to build something in you. The works start to work on you. So what has, what begins with me having to choose to be merciful to somebody or try to forgive somebody I'm having a hard time doing, eventually I become merciful and I become forgiving so that in the future when people start to offend me, I find myself instantly, my, my natural reaction becomes forgiveness. I'm trying less and less and I'm, I'm finding that I'm actually becoming this. There's some sort of substance that's happening to me. It's acclimating, but we have to try to climb the mountain with Jesus. And so, of course, he has a lot of challenging things. He's like, you thought the law of Moses was hard. He said, don't murder. I tell you not to hate somebody. He said, don't have sex out of marriage. I'm telling you not even to look at a woman in that way. He said, um, uh, he's, he, the, the law said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, turn the other cheek when someone hits you. Like, Jesus is taking all this, like, you thought Mount Sinai was a climb. You've all done that. Let's go up higher now. And that's really what happens when Jesus comes to earth. Is Israel's like, we know God. We, we've climbed Mount Sinai through the law. And then Jesus says, but did you look up and notice that that was just the first of the peaks? There's a bigger one. And that's what Jesus is. He's the top of all mountains towering over every other mountain. So this is what he tells us in this sermon is... I want you to have character. I want you to have substance. So he asks us to do it. And then in chapter seven, as he closes the sermon, he really reemphasizes, I'm asking you to actually do this. So 721, not everyone who says to me, 721, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then he backs us up with a parable. 24. Everyone then who hears these words... This whole sermon from chapters 5 through 7 about Christian character. Anyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So let me be abundantly clear so that you're not confused. We're not climbing the mountain to get saved. We're climbing the mountain so that we don't collapse when life gets hard, when the things come against us, when the temptations keep coming. Why do I keep giving into that? Because you're not mountain climbing with Jesus. You will gain strength as you climb elevation, and that temptation will not even become a temptation anymore. This is the kind of house Jesus wants to build in your life. Substance on a rock. If, however, verse 26, anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Some of us, unfortunately, have felt the sting of that fall. I know, I'm only 32, but I have two. 
And nothing like that collapse will wake you up to the importance of saying, Jesus, I'm taking your word seriously. That's why this mountain exists. Jesus wants to make you a soul with the substance of character. Which leads us now to the second mountain, chapter 17. Don't lose your place. We'll come back there one more time. (laughs) Matthew 17. I told you there's technically five mountains, so one of them is Jerusalem. There's another one if you want to do your own, like, look. Uh, It's when Jesus walks on the water in chapter 14. It says he climbed a mountain and prayed, and then he walks on water. Um, I, I just, yeah, I just chose, I don't know. So there it is. Read, like, enjoy that one. It's free. Chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Context. So here we go. Mountain climbing again. Now he's taking a few of the disciples by name, because if that doesn't call you to climb, I don't know what does. You are Peter, James, and John, if you want to be. The rest of the disciples at the bottom of the mountain, we'll see them a little bit later. But these three get to come up. Now, the context is, right before this, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they blubber off what all of the Instagram feeds have been saying about Jesus. And then he says, okay, guys, great, but what did you post last week, Peter? He said, well, I said that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, right, you are. So here we have this moment where Peter has his his head aligned properly with the identity of Jesus, right? He has that kind of belief faith that we talk about a lot. Well, now that that's happened, Jesus is going to invite Peter up the mountain. See, we got to start with believing in who Jesus is, but then he's going to say, great, let's now exercise that faith and turn it into faithfulness as you follow me up the mountain and grow. So here's what happens. Not only does the mountain climbing itself build character and substance and strengthen us, but it transforms us. When we get to the top, you are transformed. You're changed. Character leads to change. Watch. So they go up the mountain. Verse 2. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus transfigured. It's a weird word. I think it's the only time we talk about transfigurement is either in Harry Potter or here in this chapter. Um, it's not really a normal word. Just think change. That's what happens is Jesus is changing his appearance. From One translation even says from the inside out, he's changing. This is true transformation. It's caterpillar to butterfly. And this is not just for these three disciples. It's not just that they're brought up so you say, ooh, well, Jesus, now we know. No, Peter already knows. The point of bringing them up this mountain is so that they will learn to be transformed the same way. I don't think we take seriously enough the fact that we are called sons and daughters of God. You think like somehow they're still, eh, God's still way over there, I'm way over here. No, Jesus came to unite us as he is God and human and one. We too will be resurrected to be of the uh, one with God and yet still human. We will be changed too. Does not 1 Corinthians 15 say at the last trumpet in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed? For this body must put on the spiritual we too will be transformed. So this is what we see is we climb the mountain of Jesus and we will go through this. So verse three, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
Moses and Elijah. Hmm. Moses climbed Mount Sinai. Elijah climbed Mount, I heard it, Carmel. These are some of the best mountain climbers in the Old Testament. Now, were they already there? We're like, Jesus, we've been here for a while. I don't know. But there they are, Peter, James, and John. You can imagine, right? They're, they're huffing and puffing. They're following Jesus up the hill. And you just kind of see him like kind of eclipse the edge. And then he hits the plateau and he disappears because he's ahead of them. He's stronger than they are. And they're coming up behind him, huffing and puffing. And they get to the top. And then they, they finally can take their hands off their knees and they look up and, whoa, Jesus. New garbs, huh? And then they notice two other people with them. This is dramatic change. And they're caught off guard. And Peter is always the guy that feels like he has to have an answer. So he starts blubbering. Wow, Lord, it's good we are here. Duh. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. Now, the cloud, by the way, is the cloud, remember, was at the top of Mount Sinai when Moses went up there. The cloud came off that mountain and entered the tabernacle when God's presence moved into there. The cloud has always been this visible symbol of God's presence, and here it surrounds them as Jesus is at the top of the mountain. They have entered into the very life-changing presence of God. And Peter still wants to build things. <laughs> Peter, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. When you go mountain climbing with Jesus, you're going to find that he becomes the only important focus of your life. We might on the way dream of building those comfortable tents or those things that we're, (laughs) I really miss being angry at Bob. He really deserves it. Um, Like you want that still, but you have to leave it behind. But as soon as you get to a point where Jesus is all you see, and it's hard for us to see that as we kind of mill about in the valley of distractions, all the comforts around us. This is where this is where transformation happens is we start climbing and we're building character and this character built from within starts to come out and then people begin to see the change and you begin to realize there's one very important thing. It's Jesus because he's the one who keeps leading me onward and upward deeper and higher into the way I was built to live. Everything else has been a distraction from being fulfilled Everything else seems so lesser than it seems wispy, ghost-like, unsubstantial. And yet now there's substance. And that's all I have eyes for is the real. So uh, hold your place here because we'll come back to it. And now go to Matthew 28, the third mountain, the third lesson. So the first sermon on the mount, character, the mount of transfiguration change and now the mount of the great commission as we've come to call it this is your calling 2016 the 11 disciples went to galilee to the mountain to which jesus had directed them and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples. Brothers and sisters, we climb the first mountain, we're building character. And that character, as we keep climbing it to the top, leads to a transformation and a change. And once you're at the top, it's time to go back down because you have something. You have substance. You have the life of Christ. You have the light radiating from within. You've been changed. It's now time to go down the backside and go into the world and change the world. You have a calling. It's time to go. So you go up, you get to the top, and you come down, and you go and bring your strength and experience to others. This is the pattern, the three steps of the mountain climbing. We have somewhere to go. By the way, this is why I told you to keep your place at the other parts, because now you need to see it. This is the first mountain we don't see Jesus descend. They climb this mountain, and... It's implied, if you don't actually see it in this gospel, we know from Luke, this is at the point where he then ascends to the Father. He doesn't descend this mountain, but he did the first mountain. You want to see what happens when he does? Go back to Matthew 5, or 7, I mean, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7. Well, it ends there. What we really want to read is Matthew 8. So everybody murmurs, it says at the end of the sermon, like, wow, this guy's got authority. No one teaches like him because all the scribes going to copy. Like, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that. They basically like are a bunch of boring footnotes in a big scholarly book. Jesus is more like, I have something to say, and I'm not going to just quote what you've heard all around. I'm going to say it originally. And then in chapter 8, uh, we see this. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus descends the mountain and changes a life. All right, the second mountain, chapter 17. Chapter 17, they come down in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him. So when they came to the crowd, they were on the mountain, they've come down, there's a crowd at the base. A man comes up to Jesus, kneeling before him, and he said, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I I have brought him to your disciples, The other nine who didn't mountain climb with Jesus, those disciples. And they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Aren't you glad? I hope you don't hear that in your prayer life. That would be very discouraging. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? 
And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I don't know what that means. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. I, I, <laughs> I do know what isn't happening here. Three disciples go up with Jesus. He comes down and he heals someone the others couldn't heal. The ones who couldn't heal him did not mountain climb with Jesus. Then he says something very confusing and mysterious about moving mountains. I, is he implying something? And maybe more so, we often say we want to change this and we want to change that. We want to move the impossible mountain. And Jesus is saying, well, maybe you need to change first. Maybe you need to climb the mountain before you can move the mountain. So Jesus ascends, comes down two times. Both times when he gets to the bottom, someone's life changes. This time it seems to even have a pointed moment where he's almost saying that. Hey, you got a mountain climb with me, guys. Then, you don't have to go back to 28, but you remember in 28, he climbs the mountain, they climb. He doesn't descend the mountain because it's your turn. This is the mountain we descend. This is the one where we go and we heal the hurts and we bring light to the blind and we save the lost and we show mercy upon those who have not received love and we forgive those who wronged us and we turn the other cheek to those who are evil and we are able to weep with those who weep because we do not fear weeping. We say, blessed are those who weep. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We declare we're the ones who are poor in spirit rather than saying, I'm powerful, follow me. This is our turn. So there's a progression. We start climbing and build character. We get to the top and we're changed. Now we come down to our calling and we seek to call others to follow. We seek to change them. I don't know what that sound is. Is everyone else hearing it? Okay. You got it, William? Okay, so we come down. Now, on one hand, a message like this is really inspiring. It's like, yes, yes, I'm going to do it. On the other hand, we're like, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Especially when we start to read what the Sermon on the Mount says. Um, I want to encourage you that, yes, you can do this. You really can. How do you climb a 10,000-foot mountain? 10,000 choices to keep going. Now, we see what we would consider heroic acts of character. Someone might be incredibly courageous, like the military stories of someone falling on a grenade for their fellow soldiers. 
we read about people who are able to unthinking about, not thinking about their safety, go and love that person that looks dangerous and harmful when everybody else cowered away. But Jesus, who is able to touch the leper when everyone else is saying, that is nothing we're coming close to. How do these things happen? Does the grenade fall and someone says, hmm, I have a choice here. I can either be courageous and self-sacrificial or I can be cowardly and run away. You don't think that way in the moment. You just act. When people are cutting you down and slandering you, even in your face, you don't sit there and calmly think, well, should I be kind and loving to them? Should I do what Jesus told me to do? Or should I punch them or say mean things back to them? We usually don't go through this process. We just act. And unfortunately, usually someone slanders and we want to slander back. Because by default, we live in a valley. Mountain climbing's hard. The person who acts with courage does so in the moment because there have been 10,000 little acts of courage through his life leading up to that. The person who's able to calmly take that person's voice and say, you know what, let me explain myself in a very calm way, can do so because in 10,000 other instances, they have reacted that same way. They've made the choice. When the pressure is put on, we begin to behave the way we've practiced for 10,000 steps. And so we say, little things don't matter. Are you kidding me? Nobody's watching. I can do what I want. Are you kidding me? Every single little choice, every single little decision, every single little act is building up to this holistic shape of your soul. You can climb the 10,000-foot mountain 10,000 choices at a time. Jesus is not asking you to tonight go because you, some, because you believe you're now somehow supercharged to just be the saint. <laughs> you are going to leave and you're going to start changing one little thing. I'm going to try my best to breathe deeply the next time I feel like I'm being cut down by somebody. And I'm going to practice that even when it's not a big deal. And you're going to get used to that. I'm going to pause and think, is it really worth it? What's this person angry about? And I'm going to start thinking about the other person's perspective. And you start to practice this. Soon, it becomes second nature to consider the other person before you defend yourself. Soon, it becomes second nature to serve that person everybody else is scared of because you've been practicing it. Brothers and sisters, we sometimes shy away from work. So he's like, that doesn't save us. So what does it matter? But God and Jesus here is calling us into his life of character because he knows that every little choice built up over time literally shapes your soul so that when your button is pressed, it responds a certain way. Second nature, because it's not your primary nature. We have to climb mountains to gain the strength for it. And then second nature, because it now becomes our genuine reaction to things. We're changing I don't know how many of you have tried a musical instrument before. Anybody have learned to play an instrument or a sport? It seems like when I sit down, this happens. I'm going to stand up. Um, or a sport. Yeah. Okay. So I happen to play the guitar. Um, I remember watching before I played, people would play. I'm like, what in the world? There are six strings and some like 12 frets plus some more, but 12 like usable frets. And 
and there's four, sometimes five fingers, and they just kind of like, it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or read. Like, this finger goes on this string, and then suddenly it goes on this fret. And like, I didn't understand, like, how do they just know, like, to do, and then you learn, oh, there's chords that you have to learn to shape, and then, um, as I'm learning these chords, I'm like, these people do not take as long as I take to get my fingers in the right, ow, it hurts! <laughs> but over time, through the pain and through the practice, over time, you develop what's called muscle memory. It becomes second nature. Someone says, play the D. I don't have to think, uh, the D is that one. Yeah, that one. No, someone says, play the D. My fingers instinctively go to the D shape or to the C or to the G, right? This happens through practice, through repetition. I also play, played, I wish I played, baseball. Um, hitting around balls around bat is incredibly hard, especially when the pitches come incredibly fast. You do not have time when you see a really fast pitch, you do not have time to think through, okay, I'm supposed to step my foot forward. I'm supposed to bring my hands back. I'm supposed to pivot my hips. I'm supposed to track the ball. And I'm supposed to throw my hands to where the ball is. And I'm supposed to finish off. And you do not have time to... Pro- five pitches went by in the time it took me to describe that. You have to act. How do you develop the swing to act on a 90-mile-an-hour pitch in an instinct? You rep. Use repetition until your body responds instinctively. It's the same thing with our souls and with character. Is <laughs> We practice the way we should live. It feels like a work. It feels like a burden. But it somehow starts to become part of who you are. This is why I say 10,000 choices lead you up to 10,000 feet. You're not going to leap up this mountain. You're going to walk and your feet are going to hurt. You're going to be hungry or the sun's going to be too hot or the bugs are going to be in your hair. Whatever it is, you just have to keep choosing. I'm, but I'm going to keep going. But I'm going to keep going. So 10,000 choices. Um, so choose this. First, choose uphill over and over and over and over. When you in life are faced with a choice, Ask yourself, which one is leading uphill? That's generally the right answer. Which one's leading uphill? The entire Sermon on the Mount's leading you uphill. Nothing in there is the way I naturally go. Should I do this or that? Well, what's the easy route? What do you lazily want to do? Yeah, that's probably the one not to do. Choose uphill every time. As we see... In um, Matthew 26, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Matthew 26, 39, he goes a little farther and he falls on his face and he prays, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus has a choice. The cross is coming. I'm either going to take it or I'm not. Which one is uphill? Pretty obvious. So now he's asking for help. Not as I will, but as you will. Which is often the right answer to finding the uphill. Well, what do you will and what does God will? By the way, those who say, not my will, but your will, over and over and over, get God's will. God's will for all humanity is heaven. 
But those who say my will over and over and over will hear from God. All right, I'll give you your will. And because of your series of choices, it's clear you don't even want heaven. Because heaven's a place described as Matthew describes in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a place where people forgive and love and are willing to be weak because they know the right path. Your will is, well, that other place. Learn to say your will be done. Learn to choose uphill. In that Sermon on the Mount, there's this one spot where Jesus gives us a little, a little a glimpse of the uphill route. He says in 7.12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. All you have to do is shift that metaphor a little bit. The narrow gate is the uphill path. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, steep, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So learn to choose uphill. Second, eat well. To climb a lot and to walk a lot. I read a book this week because I'm crazy. Um... <laughs> for this message about a guy who hiked the Appalachian Trail. It's his account of his experiences on the trail. And although not a single piece except for what I'm saying now makes it into this message, I read it just to think about what would it be like to hike a lot. One of the things I gained from him is you have to eat right. Now, by eating right, I mean, these guys often eat Pop-Tarts because they're full of calories. That's not really recommended for those of us who work sitting at a desk. But um, they... One of the things that happened to him is he was not getting enough protein. So as his legs from walking demanded more protein, it started to feed off of his arms because he wasn't eating enough protein. He needed more protein. And we too need to learn to eat well if we want to hike well with Jesus. So I'm not talking about your diets. I'm not telling you which one to go try. They're all trends, right? but to, in your soul, to eat well. And Jesus taught his disciples how to eat well. First, in the Sermon on the Mount, he told them to fast. Yeah, 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 that's a literal food thing too, but it's also not always a food thing. Some of us in our society can fast from television or technology at times, and it can be really healthy. Like fasting, learning how to eat well is not just about food, but it can also be about the soul. What are we always ingesting that maybe we should say, mm, let's just fast from that for a little bit. Maybe healthy for us. But then Jesus told him what to eat. In Matthew 26, you know the passage so well because we're about to do it in about five minutes. The Lord's Supper is the meal for mountain climbers. Jesus gave us his body and his blood and said, take this. This is the, and I'm paraphrasing, totally paraphrasing. This is the strength you need to move on. This is how you will climb higher. This is how you will make 10,000 choices to keep going, is to keep following me and how I showed you the uphill path to the cross. And I will give you the grace and the power necessary to keep going. So keep coming to my table. Keep letting your soul be nourished by me. Keep praying as I taught you to pray. Keep reading the scriptures and hearing my parables. Keep eating well, and you'll be fine. You will find more strength if you do. The Christian who does not have scripture in their mind and does not really spend any time praying is going to keep on acting in the downhill path because that's where life takes us, unless we have the strength to choose otherwise. 
So it doesn't, it's not always that hard if we eat well. You have the energy to do it. So choose uphill, eat well. Third, final, travel light. Travel light. There was a time, oh, I guess I'll reference that book one more time. <laughs> there was a time when people who hiked that trail, the Appalachian Trail that goes basically up the whole East Coast, um, when hikers would wear big, sturdy boots. But then with trail runners becoming so much lighter, now that's their shoe of choice because if you have to take so many steps over a 2,000-mile trail, you want as little weight on your feet as possible. Your backpack needs to have as little weight as possible. Um, travel light. And so that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he follows it up with some practical stuff in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And yet are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? We carry a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's possessions. Like Jesus says, don't lay up money and possessions. It'll be lost. It's going to burden you down. But sometimes we carry other things like anxiety, like the need to control, like the need to have certainty and answers. That too can weigh you down. Because on the path, you're not always going to know what the weather will be like, where the next food station is, if your foot's going to slip on that rock or not, if there's going to be a mountain lion around the corner. I did that once, not a mountain lion. Oh, that'd be terrifying. But um, literally almost walked into a deer one time. That was terrifying because you didn't even know it was a living thing until it literally jumped like 20 feet high and away. Whoa, okay, that was scary. Um, Yeah, we carry too much. That passage goes on and Jesus says, look, don't worry about it. God takes care of us. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Wow, that's really cool. Did you know that Jesus said that there's someone he's hiring to take care of your anxiety for you? It's called tomorrow. Tomorrow's anxious for tomorrow. So stop being anxious. You're taking someone else's job and you're not even being paid for it. It's robbing you. So that's a bad deal. Um, chapter 11 is, you guys know this one. You knew this was coming, I think, when it said travel light. Chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, friends, we talk about choosing uphill, we talk about eating right, talk about traveling light, we talk about, yes, it's hard, but nowhere in it is it a burden. Please understand the difference. Every hiker, in a literal sense, will tell you, yes, the work is hard, yes, there's sometimes pain, but it is amazing and worth it. That's why they keep doing it. It may be hard and difficult, but it is not a burden or a bummer. Jesus said at the beginning of that sermon in chapter 5, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. Nine times. You get it? So I want to close with this question that you can ask yourselves. 
in the midst of choice, in the midst of what you're doing, as you examine yourself and as we take communion, this question, who would I be? Or what would be the shape of my soul if I continued doing what I'm doing for eternity? You might think that, eh, I forgive most people, but not that person. Fine, over 70 years, it may not wreak that much havoc on your soul. But what if you live that way for a thousand years? For 3,000? For 3 million? What would fester? Oh, my anger, it only flares up every now and then. But what if it flared up every now and then over a million years? What direction are we living? If you took that path and put it on a trajectory of eternity, who would you be? That's a scary thought. We must, we must take seriously the fact that we are eternal beings and that the choices we make and the lives we live and the character that we're shaping matters for a long time. So friends, let's mountain climb with Jesus this week.